The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Vitruvian Man podcast, a podcast centered around self-mastery. I'm your host, Zach Schenken. Today, I'm joined by Noah Ryan, biohacker, entrepreneur, nomad in the most traditional sense of the word. Noah is a renaissance man and scholar athlete in his own right. He travels the world growing health brands and meticulously studying the art and alchemy of human performance. If you don't know him already, his Twitter is a wealth of knowledge, and I encourage you to follow along his journey. Today, I have the privilege of sitting down and picking his brain Noah, welcome to the pod. Mr. Zach, thank you for that intro. I'm going to have to write that one down. That was awesome. Yeah, of course, brother. I uh, I took your Twitter bio and kind of tried to pour some sauce on it. I love it, dude. You sauced it up. <laughs> cool. Well, um, I kind of want to kick things off. Um, I always think it's fascinating. You know, my brand, my business is everything kind of centered around self-mastery in like a very broad sense and um, self-development. So I want to hear, I think every man has a similar story arc where like they start as an insecure kid and whether it's you come from some point and then there's some switching point. So I want to hear kind of your origin story. I'm sure you've shared it um, numerous times, but I want to hear just kind of a recap of like where you started, how you got into not only self-development and bettering yourself, but like, especially this deep world and fascination with biohacking. So open-ended, but. Yeah. And you know, that's such a loaded question because especially for me and I'm sure for other people, there's oftentimes like multiple turning points in your life where it's like, I was doing this and then I started this and then you were doing that. And then you started that. So for me, I mean, like I grew up, I was, I was pretty small, like I'm super skinny looking back at photos of me when I was like 13, 14, I was, I was a shrimp and I was growing up in an environment where like all my friends were giant. I was playing sports and my core memories were me getting, you know, pinned in wrestling, thrown around on the football field. And um, everybody was like, yeah, that's just the way life is. Like, you just have to deal with that. Uh, You can't control your biology. And I was like, you know, that's kind of bullshit. So I just got into this mindset where it was very much like an oppositional defiance. So I was just like, no, I refuse. And um, that led me down the world of like working out. At that same time, you know, I really got into, I was always obsessed with like Eastern Asian culture and in particular martial arts, you know, the samurai, the samurai culture. And um, that kind of also guided my journey uh, on the physical aspect to make it a little bit more kind of like spiritual and mindful. But anyways, you know, I started doing that for a long time and I went from being super small to being pretty jacked uh, at the end of high school. And through that process, I learned that the inputs and outputs that I did with my body were the things that I had the most control with. And then I started like tapping into it. And I was like, wow, like the food I eat alters the way that I think. And at that time, you know, I was being prescribed Adderall. You know, there was a point in my life where I was being prescribed like antidepressant, like antidepressives and stuff like that. So it was like, man, I, I have more control over this than I think. And from a very early stage, I got good at identifying what was in my locus of control. So then I did that and went to college and very much lived the college life. I loved it, you know, partying, um, socializing, all that stuff. But um, at about the, my junior year, when I went and I studied abroad in Bangkok, I kind of just realized and had time to look at things objectively. And I'm like, man, I'm really not kind of hitting my potential. I'm not being my true self. Like I was being this fake person because um, it was a front. It was easier to just like let loose, have fun you know, party and not really dig deep into who am I? What do I have to give the world? And I remember because I was in Chiang Mai, Thailand, and I went to this third party bookstore. And there's this book, it was called 
how to take control of your life um, or something like that. I still have it because it's it's a book from like the 70s. It was literally printed in the 70s. I bought it for like 35 cents. And it was my first self-development book. And that came at a great time because I was so unhappy with kind of the way that I was living. I shouldn't say unhappy, but it was getting old, right? Um, and then, yeah, I read that and it was like, okay, cool. Maybe it's time to like pursue something greater. Like maybe, you know, just partying and socializing and just wanting to get a good job isn't enough. So, you know, I came back to school, that was my junior year. And after that, I just like put all my chips in on my goal being to create a lifestyle and a career path that'll enable me to travel the world, right? Like my goal was always to get back to Southeast Asia and, um, you know, going through school, my senior year, I really dug deep, as I mentioned before the call, you know, I was like, uh, once again, looking at what I control, I could really focus on just getting rid of all my stuff. So becoming super minimalist, kind of priming myself to not be tied down by things, um, and then, yeah, COVID happened. So I was unable to go to Southeast Asia because obviously it was tough to get to that part of the world at that time. Um, so I was stuck, you know, working in a basement for like, like almost a year, like nine months. And it was in the middle of COVID, just graduated college. And I was like, okay, cool. Like I might as well commit this time to like reinventing myself. So I went through this crazy period of complete reinvention. I deleted all social media. I deleted all inkling of who I used to be. And I dug super deep. I dug super deep into myself, who I was, what I wanted to be. Um, I've never dug that deep. And I look back on that time and I'm like, that was the craziest thing I've ever done. Like from, and you know, at the same time I was in cybersecurity, I was building this threat intelligence software, working like a very intensive job, doing a lot of hours, but I was just, I was so dialed. It wasn't it wasn't balanced by any means, but like, I don't think I'd be where I am today if I didn't go through those like six to nine months of just sheer determination to like get to the bottom of who I am at my core. And then I did that and then I started traveling and then everything kind of just worked out, you know? Yeah. So, I mean, first of all, thank you for sharing your story. And uh, like I said, I think there's always that inflection point. And for you, you know, that book was it's funny books often I say like find us at the right time, you know, yeah. like, it's people always ask, like, I'm a pretty big reader. So they're like, Oh, what book should I read? And it's like, I could give you the best book list ever, but if it's not going to hit you at the right time, then it's not going to be as meaningful. And like, you, you know, it's the, the quote of the man returning to the river, but the river will never be the same. And the man will never be the same. Same thing with books. Like you can come back to the same book or a different book, and it'll be different every time you go to it. But that found you at the right time and then kind of kick things off. Um, what were you studying in school? Yeah. So um, funny enough, I studied marketing and then I had like that was my major and then minors in entrepreneurship and leadership studies, which is funny because that's like everything that I'm doing now. Going back, I realized that I think it gave me a good foundation, but I would probably do a much more intensive um, degree, right? Something with a little bit more hard skills, uh, maybe like biology, uh, maybe even something more intensive than biology, just to have that foundation of rigor. But um, I loved college. College was great. You know, I loved public speaking and all the things that I did were oftentimes like, oh, like my grade was based on how well I could speak publicly. So it was definitely a breeze. Yeah, definitely. I, uh, I think it's fascinating. So I guess I want to kind of hear as you're building out, like you're working in cybersecurity and were you doing like a marketing role or a technical role with them? And then how were you also building in parallel some sort of like agency that you're working with these health brands? Like how did that path with business specifically? And then we can get into like more of the interesting self-development stuff too. 
Yeah. So, you know, I think from the very get go, I knew that I wasn't cut out for the traditional career path or, you know, just the traditional world in general. I knew that very early on. Um, I just like didn't fit. Um, I, I like was I was savvy enough to make it work. Like I did have a few like sales internships and I loved it because it's just like relationship management, but it was very shallow. So I knew that early on. I mean, I'm left handed first and foremost. So it's like, you know, nothing in the world works for me. I can't use scissors. The desk in school were weird, you know, <laughs> binded notebooks suck for me. But um, anyway, so I started my first business when I was like 16, 17. Uh, it was a problem that I had. I solved it. And then other people also wanted that problem solved. And they came to me. So I just became obsessed with this pull model of marketing where you provide something so valuable. You don't have to go out and sell yourself. They come to you. Um, I started my first e-commerce company my sophomore year of college. It was a mess. I was overthinking everything. I built a team that was too, like I was focusing on all the wrong stuff because that's what my mentors at the time who were college professors were telling me. Um, but in order to fund that, I ended up getting an internship with a very early age cybersecurity startup doing threat intelligence. I was the third person. So it was the CEO, it was the CTO, and it was me. Um, fast forward about six months, I was just like naturally compelled by that responsibility and that idea of punching up, right? I'm a, I'm a junior, I'm a junior in college at that point. Um, Cause it was right when I got back from Thailand and I'm having all these responsibilities and I love it because it's like, I'm living a second life. And if I failed at that, I could always just come back to being a student, right? Like I'm still a good student. So everything else is just extra. So I would just go in and I would crush and I would just like, you know, pr like pretend to be like I was 30 years old, like working with, guys that were all in their late 30s and 40s. And then, you know, fast forward to that, I ended up doing that my entire senior year of college, I graduate, and I'm still so deep in it. The founder at the time is like, you know, you know, you should come on full time. Uh, I was already full time, but like, come on as like a partner. So I ended up having ownership in the company, I ended up becoming like head of operations. And then it was just me and the founder. And, you know, we were like co founders. So I was doing that for a long time. And then <laughs> I think the thing for me is like, I'm non-technical by nature. So it was such a challenge for me to like try to understand threat intelligence at a very minute level. So like I was learning Linux, I was learning Ubuntu, I was like doing, <laughs> like really trying to become a cybersecurity analyst. So because I was running product as well and I had to understand that like consumer behavior. And then it finally clicked for me. Like I finally started to get it. And then I'm like, oh, this is boring. I don't wanna do this. So I just, I literally just quit cold turkey. Did you walk away with any sort of like ownership stake or was it just like, fuck it, I'm out I, of here? I did, but it was fractional because my shares or my like equity, it was on a vesting period. Right. And I left um, well before that vesting period even hit its clip. So um, luckily the founder, he's an incredible guy. I think he's like one of the biggest influences in my life from a professional level. Um, he, you know, let me walk away with some percentage of equity, which I'm really grateful for. And they're still pushing along. They're still kicking it. But, you know, I think for me being 22 years old at the time and having that much responsibility, um, it was, it was interesting. Cause like I went straight to the top in that sense where it's like, I went straight from nothing to like managing normally, like when, cause like, I guess that's what I'm good at, but you know, I look back on it. I'm like, Maybe I'm not cut out for this. Maybe I need to go back to square one and ground zero. Um, like maybe I went too fast. And like, I just got so much self-doubt after I left because so much of my identity was tied up in that role, right? Like 
I'm the co-founder of a software company, you know, like my my business partner, the the CEO, you know, Harvard MBA, yada, yada, yada. And as a 24 year old, I was just I was like a 22 year old. I, I knew nothing. Um, and I let that my ego get tied to something external, which was a horrible idea. Yeah. So as you're working in this role, um, you kind of alluded to this deep period of like self-exploration. And I'm curious, like, obviously, I can safely assume that you were like pushing your body really hard with training, experimenting with diet and nutrition. So there's the physical side, but also you kind of alluded to the spiritual side with like the Eastern philosophy influences. So what were you doing in this period to like really figure out who you are? And then how did the answer kind of materialize in your life as far as like, okay, I want to build health brands. And then did you have an off ramp? Was it a business or did you just start putting content into the world hoping that they would hear or hit the right ears or whatever? Yeah. So this was back in 2020, 2020. And then the first month or two of 2021. Now, during that period, it was COVID. All of my friends graduated during COVID. Um, COVID just hit. And then like that was the last semester, graduated in 2020. Um, all my friends kind of stayed in Colorado where I went to school. They were all there. It was a great time. I went home to Minnesota because I was planning on going to Thailand in three months time. Um, and like, I don't even know what it was, but it was like a feeling of relief that I was able to reinvent myself. I was sick of the old me. I was sick of, you know, who I pretended to be in college. Not that I wasn't myself, but like I wasn't digging deep enough. So I had like an existential crisis as one does, you know, especially at that time. I think the fuzziness around graduating during COVID didn't give me a clean break either. So I kind of like was like, I'm done with college before college even ended. Um, I went down and I was doing some stuff like out of the state, even while I was still in school. But um, yeah, I think the biggest thing was what you said, where it's like arming yourself with knowledge. You know, I think the best thing that I can do for me personally to stir action is to become inspired. And the best way that I become inspired is by acquiring more information. So I started digging really deep. Um, Jordan Peterson was a guy that I came across at that time. And I think people have their opinions on Jordan Peterson, but his old lectures and his ability to elegantly tell the underlying meaning and understanding of so many great works in history, in literature and psychology, you know, I'm, I'm forever grateful for his ability to do that, the way that he can explain all these things. And I slowly started piecing things together with Jordan Peterson, Carl Jung, Nietzsche, Freud, all of these people, right? Viktor Frankl. And I just became obsessed with psychology. I became obsessed with just like understanding the human condition. And it became so obsessive that, you know, I pretty much disassociated for six months. I wasn't hanging out with anyone. It was in the middle of COVID. I was in a basement. I literally was just working my ass off all day, super structured. I would wake up at this time. I would do my work. I had a ritual for everything. And then I would just dive deep. I would dive deep. I would read. So YouTube has these great like 30 minute book summaries. And I would have like goals every day. It's like, I'm going to take diligent notes on one 30 minute book summary. So every single day I would have like a full synopsis of a book. I would read, you know, a book a week. I was just plowing through things. I, I honestly look back and I'm like, I don't understand how I did it, but it just gave me such a good understanding of humans. And it sounds, that sounds cliche, but like, the human condition, right? Our, why we do what we do. At the same time, I was still digging deep into evolutionary biology, which is my biggest point of interest. But it just gave me so much of an understanding. It's like, why am I the way that I am? Why do I have the conditions that I have? 
and then realizing that it's not unique. You know, the more that you study history, the more you realize the problems are the same. The problems are always the same across history. Like every great man has had the same problems. You read Teddy Roosevelt, you read Marcus Aurelius, you read Alexander the Great. They're very, very similar archetypes. So getting to an understanding of the archetype, understanding that I'm not unique, understanding that the problems that I'm facing are the problems that humans have been facing for thousands, if not tens of thousands of years, and understanding the underlying mechanisms behind my actions, behind my behavior. And then from once I had that incredible foundation, then I started to look at how my brain works uniquely. And I got really, really deep into that. And I spent, you know, four months just treating my life as a science experiment. Anytime I had any activity that put me above or below baseline, I would monitor it. I had pages on pages of just documenting my daily life and understanding how do I do what I do? Because I was very much a creature of impulse and habit before. After that, I just had such a good understanding of myself. I also got really deep into meditation at that point. So my ability to kind of observe my actions and my behaviors uh, were very effective. And at the same time, I became obsessed with martial arts. So it was like really just like an impetus of, I guess, like just a higher level of functioning, a higher level of understanding of myself. And that came with it pro its pros and cons. I wasn't able to do like the crazy feel free, have fun stuff that I used to do, but I was just, I was so deep in it. It was literally like I was, a floating head for, you know, like six months. Yeah. Uh, and I think um, for those that haven't gone really aggressively towards becoming the best version of themselves, um, it's hard to communicate that. And it definitely like to the outside observer, I can see how it sounds like obsession or even like a compulsive type thing. But the best way I describe it is that, like, it's a drug. Like once you start to realize the agency you have over your life and start to see like outputs change with your inputs it's like oh holy shit like how much can i push this how much more can i get out of myself and then you realize that like when you pair it with like spiritualism like you are the entire universe in a drop where it's like the like you're the you are the ocean in a drop and a drop in the ocean kind of thing so like mm -hmm. the, the entire exploration of the world really is just a deeper deeper dive on yourself um so that's really really fascinating so two qu two questions off of that stuff one is what were those meditative practices that you found most effective and adopted? And then two, what was your path to martial arts? Did you just go into like MMA or was it something more specific? Um, and then also, meanwhile, like when you're doing this data collection, actually answer those first. I don't want to overload. Yeah. What was the first question again? First question is like, what was the meditative practice that mm. you found most effective? And where did you kind of take that influence? Yeah. So, you know, I was a software junkie at that time because I was building software. So I was becoming very obsessed with like understanding. That's actually what got me the impetus to delete all my social media because I was studying how to make retention higher on like SaaS products. And I was like, well, I got to make it addicting. So I started looking at like how social media accounts or social media platforms make it addicting. I'm like, that's fucked. I don't want to be, you know, uh, exposed to that. But um, anyway, in terms of the meditation practice, I just use the app Balance right? I was really big into learning from others at that point. And I wanted to understand the fundamentals of how to meditate. Um, and it was an incredible tool. It gamified the process. And like, I was obsessed with gamification back then. I was gamifying my whole life. I was gamifying the software I was building. I wanted everything to be gamified because I was able to like separate myself so effectively. So yeah, I used the balance app. And then in terms of martial arts, I've always been obsessed with martial arts. Ever since a kid, I was, I remember shadow boxing in my room. Um, my parents obviously 
did not want me doing martial arts because I would get in trouble as a kid anyway. And they're like, you know, their logic was, well, if we teach him how to fight, he's just going to get in more trouble. So I was never able to train it. And then I graduated college and I'm like, well, it's now or never really. So I started doing just simple kickboxing. I went to a really incredible gym, um, signed up and started doing kickboxing and then started doing Muay Thai. Um, and then once I started doing Muay Thai, I saw like the jujitsu guys and I was like, okay, maybe I'll try that. And then it was when I did jujitsu where it's like, I remember like the first day, um, the head guy, um, head coach was like, like, have you trained before? I'm like, no, he's like, you should stick with it. And I was like, oh, okay. Like maybe I've got something here. And then like, you know, they say like work hard at what you're good at. I just like had that feeling where it's like, man, I've got like such a competitive advantage here. Maybe because of my background in training, maybe just because of my unique structure. And a lot of it, I think was like the unique intuition aspect. And I just, I became obsessed with it from there. Um, and it really took over my life almost too much. You know, I, I'm one of those guys where like, if a little is good, a lot is great. And I, I've been actively breaking that habit, but yeah, I, I really got obsessed with it. And it just completely changed the way that I interacted with the world. Did you end up pursuing it to a place where you were competing at all? No, um, because COVID made it difficult. And then I ended up moving right after, but um, I do still plan on competing. But um, man, it was just, it was such an incredible experience, um, like training at like a gym and just like really developing in one gym. Now with moving around, I have to switch from gym to gym. But um, yeah, I do plan on competing eventually. I can't do striking um, because the risk to reward ratio is high. And I think that's something that you have to consider. It's like, if you're going in a sport where the objective is to give someone else uh, brain damage, like it's probably not the most sustainable. But I think with jujitsu, the risk factor is a lot lower. There's still chance of, you know, clonking your head, um, getting, you know, ligament and tendon injuries and joint injuries, but uh, the risk is lower. Yeah, I agree. I, I've done, I did like a brief three month stint with jujitsu and I absolutely love it. I, I plan to get back in. Um, it is really strange because I came from team sports. And so the world of like the one on one kind of like ultimate responsibility, it's just you and like every mistake you make is amplified by the person you're competing against. It's a really unique worldview shifter kind of thing um but in that period what kind of like i want to kind of move towards this like very data-driven biohacking intense kind of study space um because i am i do find it very fascinating you know like guys like ben greenfield um like the the consummate self-experimenters like tim ferris being kind of like an og um yeah how did you find yourself like what were you doing early stages were you taking like data did you have a glucose monitor like were you recording your sleep what tools were you using to like be data driven um and then how did you find yourself like being able to learning and teaching yourself to like review you know academic literature clinical studies all this kind of stuff yeah so i think to preface it um my the, the way that I got into, I was, I was always obsessed with health from an early age, right? Like changing my inputs to change my output. It started with fitness, very arbitrary goal of getting bigger and stronger. Um, I think in college, you know, I got a few concussions and I lost a lot of my memory. Uh, my verbal fluency was flatlined. I just became very dissociated. And that's kind of where I was like, okay, cool. Now I should probably start digging deeper. I think from the beginning, my position in like work, my position in a lot of things was taking highly complex ideas and technical matter, uh, whether it be, you know, uh, computer science, or in this case, you know, biology, and trying to figure out a way to simplify it. 
So I think I just had that natural tendency. Um, you know, my parents are both um, kind of like in the science realm um, and like in the medicine realm. So that kind of scientific rigor was just the norm um, growing up. And then I think with, you know, to be honest, a lot of that structuring and testing came about from, you know, creating software from like business, right? Because it's the same exact structure. What are our KPIs? What are our objectives? What are we going to be monitoring to see if we move the needle? Um, and that was, that was really it. You know, in the beginning, I didn't use any monitors. I wasn't using a CGM. I wasn't using a sleep, like a sleep monitor. It was all qualitative. And to this day, I believe that qualitative data is the best data because data is not always accurate. I think it's a good starting point, but it's more about how you feel. And then as I progressed, that's when I started introducing more tools um, and stuff like that. But even like my fundamental belief is that you should start with intuition. You should start with how you feel. For me, I was more interested in like what's going on in my head as opposed to like what's going on in my body. Granted, they're deeply interconnected. But even now, like with devices, I do use devices, but um, I don't use them continuously, right? I use them to get a fundamental understanding. And then like, I want to dive deep in them. I find them interesting, but I usually end up like tapering off after month three. Then I'm like, how can I just make this more sustainable or I have a really solid foundation? And, you know, that's what I recommend to everyone, you know, same with like counting calories or counting macros. I think you should do that for a period of time. So you get a fundamental understanding and it forces you to hone your attention in on what is the food I'm eating, right? Because now I can look at a food. I'm like, cool. Like, that's about 750 calories. There's like 32 grams of protein in there. Like I just look at food as fuel and I wouldn't have been able to do that if I didn't go through a three month period of monitoring everything. I agree. And I'm glad you touched on that because it's one thing I wanted to ask about because I do think like life is in these dichotomies where you can get super data driven and it's like the biohacking spaces is, is why I, I wanted to touch on it is like, I was going to ask your opinion, basically like, how do you balance being super data driven, looking at the studies, all right, like what supplements can I buy? Like what are what are like how do I get these like nth percent results? Or mm -hmm. is it like and then also just returning to like, do I feel better? Do I like look better? Is my like skin, hair, body like just treating me better? Um, and then like, yeah, I think for the everyman, it's like there's tertiary levels of health. Like the center is like train hard, sleep well, eat well. And then like you start to move like further away from center and you get into like the stuff that can be really fascinating, but it ends up being like mental masturbation at some point, right? Because you're not, you're getting like such little return on investment. Yeah. So I'm, I agree with 100%. I think that's a great way of rationalizing it. I don't care really about the nth degree of a lot of things because I don't have a specific objective, right? If like the way that I see it is my goal is to be as healthy as possible for as long as possible. I'm not trying to be in the top percent. I'm not trying to be the number one chess player in the world. I'm not trying to be the number one like jujitsu athlete in the world. I'm not competing for any given sport. I'm not hopping on a stage for bodybuilding. I'm not doing a powerlifting competition. So I just want to be good enough at all of them, right? I just want to be able, like I optimize for mobility and not mobility in like the physical sense, but the, the ability to go do whatever I want at any given time. Everything I'm doing is so I can get more out of life. So for me, like my baseline is like, am I happy? Uh, do I feel good? Like, do I have like the symptoms of high cell functioning? Like are my mitochondria functioning properly? And a lot of that's just based on how I feel. 
I believe that intuition is the most important thing that we as humans have, you know, our gut and that gut instinct to make those snap second decisions evolved way earlier than, you know, our rational reasoning parts of our brain. So, you know, for me, I'm a very intuitive person. Uh, rationality and reasoning has often led me astray. I use that only to back up the feelings and um, hypotheses that I have, right? So it's like, I do something because I feel compelled to do it, but I know there might be times where I'm not feeling as compelled. So I'm going to back it up with data where it makes it stronger and it fortifies that decision. So for example, with alcohol, you know, I was like, I'm going to quit drinking alcohol because I feel like it's the right thing to do. It's getting in the way of a lot of my goals. I'm spending a lot of money. Um, I don't like the feeling when I'm hungover, but like that is just an emotional decision in and of itself. So then I went and I backed it up with data about like, here's how alcohol affects your liver. Here's how alcohol affects your gut and your stomach. Here's how alcohol affects your brain. So now that just added an entirely new leg to that emotional and intuitive decision. So I do believe like people like to separate things. People like to look at things as black and white. My biggest objective for a long time has been able to, has been being able to entertain multiple ideas at once, multiple lines of logic at once and understand that like they're oftentimes coincided, right? So that's the whole thing with like ancient, like Ayurvedic or traditional medicine, right? They call it non-traditional medicine, but it's really traditional medicine versus like modern science. People are like, you have to choose one or the other. I'm like, they're saying the same thing. We're finally at a point where you can just align them and make those comparisons. And I don't think a lot of people are good at connecting the dots between seemingly disparate ideas. You know, that's something that I learned really uh, like during that period of like self exploration, where it's like, that is probably the best skill set that I have is being able to see connections and think more nonlinearly with that. So that's how I approach it. Um, I'm not a super optimizer. I just like start using devices because I think they're cool and to see like what kind of data we can look at, but I never rely on them. Yeah, I think that's a very healthy approach. And and it I do, it's kind of like almost uh, Buddhistic in the, in the sense that you're kind of detaching from the both the words and the definitions because I, I've also come to this kind of like middle ground. Uh, on my last podcast, I had a guest and he said like, there's a quote from Buddhism, like the middle road, the middle road is the way. And it's kind of like true. Like if you land on any polarity, like worship science as your God or worship just like all of this airy fairy, just God and deny science. Like they are telling the same story. There is only one creation. There's only one, like you said, male, like masculine archetype through history. There's one story. There's the hero's journey. It's the same. It's all the same, but whatever words we attach to, um, that's where people get like very tribal and they're like, this is my camp. Like I'm science. Like I have all these academic like certifications to prove to you that I'm smart or like I studied in seminary and like, I know that God is speaking to me directly and you have to listen to my teaching, but it's like, all right, like how different really is, you know, the concept of the law of attraction and then quantum physics and vibration of particles. Like they are literally the same thing. And whether you choose to like go sit in the, in the tall grass and talk to your friends about your feelings, or if you go to like an academic seminar it's all the same story. So I think detaching from like the emotionality, people love to like get in these like tribal buckets, um, which is yeah. understandable. It's like evolutionary. And, and I wanted to get into that. So you, one of the more fascinating things that I, I saw from you and I hadn't seen it from anyone else yet is this concept of like your family heritability through time affecting how you would best function either as like more of a nomadic type or more of like a sedentary kind of localized um being so 
I'm I'm fascinated by this idea, so I kind of want to let you run with it a little bit. But how does yeah. that play into you being this sort of like nomad? Because everyone like romanticizes like I want to travel the world and work from wherever. But like, is it right for you? And how do you find that out? Yeah. So I mean, you're, you're spot on with that. I'm obsessed with this idea that a lot of current suffering and diseases are mismatched diseases, right? We evolved to live and thrive in a certain environment. This modern environment is completely disparate from that. And you know, that's just the way it is. Um, so I became obsessed with that because I struggled with things as a kid, right? Depression, ADHD, and all those things. And I was like, everyone's like, oh, it's a, it's a chemical imbalance. Like, it's just who you are you're not fit, like, you, it's your problem. I'm like, well, maybe it's a mismatch of environments. And once again, going back to looking at the things I can control, it's really hard to change your internal state, the way that you're operating and functioning, it's a lot easier to change your environment. So I realized just like changing my environment, removing distractions in my environment made it easier to focus. Being around people that are acting a certain way makes it easier to focus. And like, I started making those connections as I was like really digging deep into anthropology. When I was in Bangkok, I was studying abroad there at a university. And, you know, a lot of my classes were anthropology based. And I had this one professor, he was a field anthropologist. So he spent his entire life just like researching monkeys, you know, going out in the jungles of Africa and like fighting against poachers, the coolest guy I've ever met. But the way that he explained why we have all these human desires and these human inclinations are really just like evolutionary survival mechanisms. So I dug deep into that and I was able to make connections with every single thing I did relating to survivability. And that dug me deep into the hunter farmer hypothesis. Um, Tom Hartman came up with it in the nineties. It goes to explain like why some people have these ADHD like symptoms and why it really is a uh, genetic, I guess like it's a polymorphism, but it's a, it's a mismatch of genetic. It's a mal, it's a maladaptive trait. So like for me as someone who has ADHD like symptoms, I'm not very fit for like this farmer agricultural world, but going back and looking how effective, how effective those traits would be, you know, 10,000, 12,000 years ago in a hunter gatherer nomadic environment, I would probably be at the upper level of survivability, right? I would have the highest chance of survival and then digging into what does that look like? And for me, it's like, if you were a good hunter, uh, you would always be like scanning the horizon, right? You'd be very easily distracted because you'd want to hear a crack in branches over there. You'd have this heightened stimulus response. So that was a big factor. The ability to kind of make things up on the fly, the ability to drop everything and go and hunt something, right? You wouldn't be very good at going in every single day and doing something from, you know, nine to five, but you would be really good at having this hyper focus at certain periods of time and just be completely laser locked in. And then, you know, spending periods of rest to like recover, regurgitate and whatnot. And, you know, I saw a lot of that carry over, especially when I was doing martial arts. It's like, man, like I get locked in like this just feels right. Like this just feels, you know, like this is what my genes wanted me to do. So then digging into that and realizing the mismatch of the agricultural side and like the farmer archetype where it's like the the agricultural revolution increased the likelihood of survival for genes that enabled you to stay in one place for a super long period of time, to watch your crops, to come in every single day and do the same thing, right? To just have a very linear focus. So although we didn't evolve from like an evolutionary standpoint, there were selective pressures to increase the survivability of people who were able to live like that. So these hunter genes slowly got weeded out of the gene pool. Some of them, you know, by being either recessive genes or just living in pockets, were able to subsist until today. So that was the big light bulb moment for me. It's like, I know if I go down this traditional path, I will never 
reach that like le full level of self-actualization. I'll be dragging my feet. I'll probably need crutches, right? Like stimulants or whatever it may be. It's a mismatch. So the only thing that I could do was completely change my environment and change my world to actually um, where, where my traits, where my natural traits were actually of benefit, right? Where they were a strength. And then, you know, that that's what I did. Yeah, definitely. But I, I do want to, I mean, push back on the hypothesis or just at least hear like further thoughts on, because like you kind of touched on like the period of time that we evolved as hunter gatherers, like that is like hard coded because it was just such a longer period of development as opposed to post-modernity, post-agricultural revolution. So like, yes, there were selective pressures. Yes, there were, um, I guess, like regions and pockets that favored the results of those that were more like consistent focused or whatever. Um, mm -hmm. So how do you, do you think ultimately that everyone has the ability to tap into the, the hunter side and like the primal, more archaic part of our brain? And then also likewise with higher level functioning, overcome that to like optimize for what is generally the world for most people, which is like highly structured, highly consistent, showing up in a, in the same kind of place. Absolutely. You know, I, I think it's very much a spectrum and it's not all or nothing, right? You know, for me, it's like, yeah, do I want to live like a hunter gatherer? A hundred percent. I'm going to do that, but I'm also going to take full advantage of the benefits that modernity has. I wouldn't be able to do anything that I'm doing right now if I didn't learn how to operate in this system. And as I mentioned earlier, you know, I always felt that I could operate in that system, but it was a little bit, it wasn't as natural. And, you know, for me, one of the biggest, I think, strengths that I've been able to accrue is the ability to build structure, right? Like for me, like I was really focused in business on operations and building systems because that was a weakness that I had. So I do think everybody's able to overcome those weaknesses. I think they should experiment with both sides, but I think everybody does have a natural tendency and desire to do one or the other, maybe just on different levels of intensity. Mm. For me, it's like, ever since I was a kid, I loved novelty. I loved exploring new environments. And like, we know that new external stimuli is one of the best things you can do for like cognitive development, right? We know that us as humans, we are hardwired to want to explore new environments because that's what increased our chances of survival. That's what, well, that's what enabled us to be the most dispersive creature that's ever existed, right? Like no other animal has gone to new areas and new forays like we have. We're incredibly adaptive. We're incredibly good at coming up with new ideas. So I just want to take full advantage of that. I think that's what's deepest to my core. And as since I've been pursuing that, my life has just gotten exponentially better. It's It's been really difficult because you, you have to craft an entirely new environment. And it's a lot of trial and error. But once you figure it out, you're like, this just feels right. Definitely. And then I know we talked about this before on the call, but coming to this realization also that because we are tribal creatures and there is like so much now, now data back, but even intuition before that, that like we are enriched and fulfilled by having a sense of community, a sense of acceptance and a sense of some consistency. Um, how are you transitioning now to kind of the ability to still be nomadic, but also have these like pockets and bases that you're going to? Yeah. So that's a super, super important. Like us as humans, a lot of the reasons we are the way that we are is because we are such good collaborators, right? Like that is why we got like this ability to speak the way that we speak, right? Just the way that we have relationships with other humans is what has made us so great. So a lot of times we evolved in a tribal environment, like our sense of self was not us. It was the tribe. If the tribe survives, we survive. Um, so that's something that I've been digging into recently. I think to preface it, you know, humans do go through these natural progressions of 
like overarching desires, right? So like when we're a kid, we want to be really close to our mom and dad. Once we become teenagers, we have this urge to separate ourselves from our parents and start hanging out with our peers. That's just a natural hardwiring. When we're in our 20s, it's a lot more about independence, just us focusing on ourselves. Once we get older, we'll have this natural urge to want to settle down, to want to have a family, to want to stay more in one place. So I fully understand that. And I accept that my perspective on all this will change uh, as I become older. But yeah, as I mentioned, you know, my big thing about nomadic living, besides all of the benefits it just gives me and like wanting an intuitive sense of moving there is that it's the most evolutionarily accurate. I'm at my best when I'm constantly stimulated by new environments, but looking at like how hunter gatherers actually operated, they oftentimes moved around seasonally, right? Cause they'd follow the herds and the herds would move seasonally. Like you look at birds and they migrate to the same place. So like you'll see a bird in the summer in Minnesota, it'll go down to Florida for the winter. It'll probably come back up to Minnesota. So I've been trying to incorporate that more, right? Because the nomadic lifestyle can be lonely. Um, granted we have the internet to connect with everybody, but like in-person connections is really important. So setting up hubs in certain areas that you have those connections, you have that community that you care about and that you can relate with and connect with, and then being able to move seasonally across that. So that's what I tend to do. Uh, you know, I have some hubs and like, I'll go back to there and I'll have people that I remember. Like I'll have people that I know and that I have that connection with that tribal relationship with, and then be able to go back and forth. <clears throat> Definitely. I think it's like a good approach. And honestly, I think it's cool because it takes a bit of like true nomadicism um, to explore like where those hubs might be one to like poke around and see like where your people are, like where people that you function well with are. And then also like what areas you might even want to like live in, because it, it can be very aspirational when you see on like vision boards, like, Oh, I want to live to Bali, but like, you don't know if Bali's for you until you go, or you don't know if Mexico city is for you until you go. Um, so what are, what are some things that you look for in places that you're trying to hide out in? And also like, people groups like how do you knowing that you're going to be bouncing around so much how do you try to engender that sense of community yeah so you know in terms of like how i choose where to go um it's really just like throw a dart at the wall i know what i like i kind of know what i don't like for me you know i just i love like small towns i love like fishing villages I, it's always been like my favorite places the places where the uh, natural culture has not been disrupted by globalism. So if you go to any city, like there's going to be a lot of global pressures, right? There's going to be a lot of global influence. You go to a small town and a lot of times it's just like straight tradition. Nothing's changed much because it's been in isolation. So that's what I like personally. Um, in terms of like choosing where to go, I just, I, I book the ticket and then I figure everything out after. I think I find that that's the impetus I need and then everything figures itself out. Um in terms of building community, um, anytime I go somewhere new, like the first things I do, it's like, I'm going to find a gym, I'm going to find a coffee shop, and I'm going to find, you know, a restaurant. And I'm going to go there like every day. And I'm going to feel, I'm, my goal is always assimilation. I want to feel like a local. I want to feel like I belong here. I want people, like, I love when people come to me and they ask me directions and stuff like that. Because they're like, this guy just seems so assimilated. Um, and, you know, that's my objective. And like, really just focusing on building relationships, like going to a coffee shop become friends with everybody who works there, right? So then when you walk in the door, they say hi to you, you say hi to them by their name, you start knowing everybody else in there. Now you're a local, now people feel comfortable coming up to you. And like, you just naturally build that community. Same with the gym, right? Same even with the market. Like when I moved to Mexico and when I was in a certain spot, like I knew I, I got connected with a farmer, right? So like I knew my farmer, I knew like the, the butcher that I was going to, I knew all of them by name and like that sense of community 
that's really what it is. <clears throat> a lot of people are like, oh, I need to find friends. But it's like, no, like the community is more than friends. You're not going to be friends with everybody in your community, but you can still have those relationships, right? With the people that are like providing food for you, the people that are giving you accommodations in like a coffee shop, the people that are in your gym. So um, find those spots and make yourself a local, I think is the most important thing. Yeah, that's very fascinating. Um, and a great and a really cool perspective, I think. Do you, uh, are you multilingual? bilingual do you try to just pick up what you can when you land or do you have like yeah. a base so i speak uh, pretty fluent spanish um when i was in high school i spent two summers in spain which definitely helped same thing just like staying with the host family um and then like going there my objective was to become fluent um you know purposefully not speaking any english really forcing myself to learn the language and you know it happens very rapidly so yeah, I speak Spanish very fluently, which opens the door to so many other countries. Um, when I was in Thailand, I re like I was studying Thai, the Thai language. It's a lot more difficult because it's a tonal language, but I very much believe that learning new language is important. As you probably know, a lot of countries make that as like their like requirement. Most countries, uh, most people in other countries are bilingual, and it's just normal. So I saw a lot of my foreign friends and their ability and desire to just want to pick up new languages, right? Like Dutch friend who speaks French comes to Spanish and he's trying to learn, he's trying to learn uh, Spanish, who comes to Mexico trying to learn Spanish, also speaks English. And like the way that they approach languages is different. So I wanted to do that as well. And then you realize once you learn one language, it's a lot easier to learn another. Yeah, definitely. Um, I, I have this like low aspiration that because I studied uh, Spanish a little bit in high school that I would like to spend like kind of just book the ticket and go to like some Spanish speaking country and pick it up. As mm -hmm. I do think like that, um, you know, Tim Ferriss talked about it in the in the four hour work week. It's it's like less about being obsessed with proper fluency, like going to a classroom and just becoming conversational, because once you're like effective at communicating, it really does flow a lot more. Um, I want to circle yeah. back to more of kind of where you're expertise i suppose and like current public presence is and like this health driven um data stuff and and kind of the biohacking space so i'm curious like one thing is you put out a tweet the other day that i think was interesting and you said like the only thing that matters in supplementation or really kind of purchasing any sort of product from a health company whether it's a supplement or food or whatever is the ingredients and where they're sourced like marketing all this other stuff is tertiary and kind of bullshit so how do you go about like actually vetting the products that you use and the products that you condone and then even when you're going like kind of deeper into like the efficacy of a certain ingredient for instance in, in the human body like when you're looking through clinical studies how do you like do you go to see like who funded the studies and like what is your best approach for kind of actually making a quote-unquote like as close as you can correct decision. Yeah. So, I mean, dude, I started just having the shittiest like supplements, right? Like whey protein that's just full of fillers and heavy metals. Um, <clears throat> it really became a focus of mine when I was experiencing some pretty nasty heavy metal toxicity about eight, nine months ago, you know, and I was just, it, it fucked me up. It, it messed me up real bad. I was losing my hair. Um, I just felt awful. Like it really it makes you depressed because it's so neurotoxic. Um, and I was just feeling absolutely horrible. A lot of the problem was iron, um, iron, and I believe nickel as well. But um, anyway, so like that made me so much more attuned to what I was exposing myself to. Because at that point, you know, like I do all this health stuff, but at the same time, you know, I'm going to foreign countries, I'm having street food. I'm just like, really, a lot of times I like roughnecking it. Uh, and like, you can't always, 
just getting blasted by pollution at the very least every single day is going to accumulate some toxins in your body. So, you know, as I started to grow my online presence, which I really didn't have an objective to do, it just came about naturally. Um, but like it enabled me to feel more confident, com like connecting with people who run these businesses, right? Because I started interacting with them online. I'm like, oh, they're just normal people. So it got to the point where I just, every time I would buy a supplement, I would reach out to the team. I would like really try to hop on a call. And then I would go in and I'd be like, what is the risk factor for any given supplement? Maybe like, for example, like Tonkat Ali, like I want to make sure that it is a very specific standardized extract because then I can have certainty that it has the potency that I'm looking for. I want to make sure that they do heavy metal testing analysis, you know, potentially mycotoxin analysis. Um, and like, I just want to have a conversation with the person behind it because you can learn a lot about someone's intentions and the way that they handle themselves based on their personality. So I think between that and between me starting to work with supplement brands and realizing that I'm like, oh, these guys don't give a shit about uh, their supplement. They don't give a shit about their products. They have no idea what they're putting in this product at all. Like they have no idea. Like they're coming to me for supplement advice when they're the owners of the supplement company. And I'm just the guy that's, you know, running their marketing. So it's like, that was when the curtain was unveiled. And that's when it's like, man, I'm only going to be working with brands and products that I have full conviction in. Because that's what I need for me personally. Like I just, I can't do work that I'm not fully bought into. And then that just opened the door to me, like building these relationships with these people that run these supplement companies, having conversations with them, understanding why their product is special. You know, how do we know that there's like, can I see your supply chain? Where's the transparency here? And, you know, people are like, you know, that is, in my opinion, the best marketing that you can do is just by having a really solid product, having a really solid supply chain and being incredibly transparent and authentic with it. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think what's awesome about the internet is it's like democratizing the availability of information. So it's not just like I'm being fed whatever marketing is being spent the most in the newspaper or TV. Like I have the ability to do a little traceability search and follow the supply chain on the website. You know, like obviously there's some of these larger companies may try to obscure that information or like bury it deep, deep down. But um, it's it's worth going down the rabbit hole, especially when you're talking about stuff you're putting into your body because that ultimately becomes your body. Um, and so like it really, really does matter on that endpoint. And then for as far as what you decide to go and use on the day to day, I think there's there's always the reductionist philosophy, which is like what were what did we evolve to consume, like organ meats, fruit, all of that stuff. And I think that is kind of the the best approach generally. But as far as researching, like, okay, do I incorporate glycine? Do I incorporate taurine? Like a, a single ingredient supplement that like could give you some benefit. When you're doing searches through the clinical literature, how do you know or how do you vet the studies? Um, and then because like for me, a huge problem and I can't, I studied biomedical engineering in school. So I was reading a lot of these academic journals and, you know, in school, you can kind of just be like, okay, this study says this, like, boom, I'll put it in my paper. But like, those aren't always the best case. Cause you don't know how it was run. You don't know what standards they were being held to. And two, like one of the most important things is who paid for the study, right? Like mm -hmm. a lot of the studies that backed things like, you know, grains being healthy for us in our everyday diet were paid for by big farming or, you know, big yeah. milk, like when the the big milk campaign came through um, for pasteurized milk and stuff. So how do you look at like clinical research and say like whether this is good or bad data? Yeah. So I understand how easy it is to skew data, right? So obviously in any study, I'm looking at the baseline fundamentals. Is it double blind? Is it placebo controlled? So I want to make sure that they at least have those baseline foundations. 
But, you know, at the end of the day, my objective is I, I love anecdotal data because I think, you know, the, the pro of anecdote is data. So for me, I'm looking at multiple sources. I have a big list of people that I trust in the space. I want to see what they've talked about on it. I'm really good at Googling things. You know, I started out doing a lot of SEO. That was like my first marketing service endeavor. I sucked at it, but I got really good at keyword, like keyword research. So doing a lot of debt research, going through like NCBI, and now there's like some pretty good AI tools that you can do. And you can actually just look up studies based on keywords. Um, doing that forums was a huge one for me. So I was always like perusing through Reddit because there's some incredible people on Reddit, on Quora, um, just doing all of these searches and getting as many data points as possible. And then understanding that not all those data points are going to be good, let alone great. And then just having that ability to entertain all of them while not adhering to any of them and then coming to your own conclusion. I think the most important thing in determining what supplements you need to take is what is your objective? What is the risk profile of any given supplement? Because every supplement has a risk profile, every single one of them. Is it worth taking this supplement with that risk profile in mind? How can I take this supplement properly with well avoiding that risk? What is the proper dosage, the frequency, everything? And really just like understanding all spectrums of that. Because like, like anything that has a strong biological function somewhere is likely going to have a stronger biological function elsewhere that you don't intend, right? Like unfortunately things don't happen in a vacuum. A lot of our biological functions are extremely interconnected. So I think that's the most important thing um, in terms of what you're saying about, yeah, it's ideal to just live as like ancestrally or evolutionarily accurate as possible. I agree, but you have to understand that, you know, our modern world has brought about a lot of modern problems that can't be solved with evolutionary approaches, right? The fruit that we eat is different. The vegetables that we have are completely different because of soil demineralization, among other things, glyphosate, atrazine. Our body's ability to absorb the nutrients from our food are extensively impeded by a lot of the toxicities of our modern environment. So modern problems require modern solutions. For me, you know, my goals are sometimes even like surpassing what we would be able to do from like a baseline functioning level. Like you have to understand like humans weren't born to be the best optimized version of their self. That wasn't the objective. That's not the goal of your genes and your genetics. Your goal and your pursuit is to re like reproduce. So you can be unhappy and reproduce. You can be not fully functioning cognitively and like have full level health and be able to reproduce. Evolution doesn't really care. So it's like, you got to take stuff in your own hands. That's why I don't like the word biohacking. But at the end of the day, there's nothing better to explain it of like do-it-yourself biology. I'm trying to be as smart as I can be. I'm trying to be as strong as I can be. I'm trying to be as effective as I can be as efficiently as possible. And that is going to require some modern solutions. Definitely. Yeah. It's why like in like what I do with my program, it's kind of like a holistic self-development and I didn't want to bucket it into just, just training or just mindset or just philosophy, because like you said, it's, a, it's this deep interconnectedness where developing your mindset also means hardening your body and putting it, training it rigorously, which also means eating properly, which also means meditating like like it's kind of like the, it's a closed loop but every every point on that circle matters um and the same thing yeah can be true with your supplementation approach um so that that is pretty fascinating um i definitely think there there is room for um exploration and and so i guess like for an everyman like if i'm not a health professional in the space biohacker like i don't want to spend time digging through Re, like research articles, clinical studies, emailing founders of supplement companies, like what are some people you trust, brands you trust, and then also maybe 
um, places people can go for the information? Like, are there databases that I can search like, okay, the, these are like reputable or vettable rather than having to go through like PubMed, so, like uh, paper by paper? Yeah. So it's tough. I mean, there are databases that do like supplement rating. I think one of them is consumer, consumer reports. I'll look it up. Um, it's somewhere on Twitter. I don't really use them that much because like I said, I'm at the point now where it's like, I want to get on the phone with yeah. whoever I'm buying products from. Like I want to know them. Um, in terms of like where to go for research, I think be before even doing any research, like make sure you have the baseline fundamentals figured out, right? Like identify the things that you have the most exposure to on a daily basis. Make sure those are pristine, right? So that's going to be your food. That's going to be your water. And that's going to be your sleep environment. So like just it, it's it's the upper level optimization really is pointless until you get those basics down. And I know that's cliche. Um, but like I think the most important thing is just to become more curious, right? I think become more curious, find people that you can trust people you can trust is going to be different than like, depending on who you are. Uh, for me, like, I think understanding the, the, the underlying mechanisms is important. I know it's intensive, but it's also, you know, it, it's fun. Like it should be enjoyable. So, you know, Dave Asprey has been incredible for that. Ben Greenfield has been incredible for that. You know, Andrew Huberman, I know he gets, he gets flack, but that's just what happens when you get that big, like his ability to explain how our body works at a mechanistic level is unrivaled. Like he is definitely one of the best people to do that. And that's why he's had so much success. Um, learning how to use Reddit. So anytime you have a question, like get good at Googling things and just put Reddit at the end and you'll find people having discussions on it. It's not going to be all 100% accurate, but a lot of times they're going to link to reputable sources. So get good at that um, and find people that you trust, right? And I think that's what a lot of people do on Twitter. I think that's why Twitter is so great is there's people that you can trust on there and they put their money where their mouth is. There's people that have been tweeting every single day for the last year, right? So you can go back and you can see, you know, like where's their proof of work. And that's really important. I completely agree. And honestly, whether it's buying into like somebody's paid program or just following this free content that they put out, like when somebody makes it their like livelihood to do something consistently, like they are the funnel, they're doing the hard work they're kind of distilling all this information so you can actually buy back their time, their research, their knowledge, their expertise, whatever it is, whether it's a business mentor or otherwise. Um, and so like, I don't know, like in this space, I would say that you are somebody that's good to follow. I like am on the Telegram channel. I'm following on you on Twitter. And so like, I'm not going to go through the PubMed studies to figure out if I need to study it because like I have other fires to fight right now. It's just not my thing, but I am fascinated deeply by the space. And like, I'm also very interested in like pursuing my kind of physical excellence at the nth percent. So it's, mm -hmm. uh, I think finding those people is awesome. And I think it's cool that you're doing it. Um, so I appreciate the work. And uh, I kind of wanted to ask based off of that, what is one thing you think that people are doing consistently? And like, we can say, let's not take like the average American, let's assume people are slightly above baseline, they're into self-development training, trying to watch their diet. But like, what's one thing people are consistently doing majorly wrong that they shouldn't? And then one thing that the people aren't doing that they should start to implement. It's a good question. Um, not filtering their tap water is a big one, right? Um, having just extensive exposure to all the chemicals that are in uh, municipal water systems. And you can look that up on ewg.org because once again, it's it goes back to that, like I have an emotional or rational reasoning to want to filter my tap water. Let me back it up with data. Because when you see that there's 436 times uh, 
like the the arsenic levels in your water are like 450 times the uh, safe limit. Um, that's going to give you that impetus to make those changes and go through that extra friction that's required to filter your tap water, which is very abysmal, right? Install a shower filter and start, install a reverse osmosis system. So I think that's the biggest one. Um, I think also the biggest thing that people aren't doing is it's super cliche, but like the sleep aspect, the sleep consistency, right? Like there's this thought that it's like, oh, well, I only got four hours of sleep last night or I, I went to bed at 3 a.m. last night. So I'm going to wake up at, you know, 11 a.m. So I get those full eight hours. And then the next day it's like, well, I woke up at 11 a.m., but I went to bed late last night. I'm going to go to bed at 9 p.m. And then they wake up at like, you know, 7 a.m. It is more effective for you to have consistency than it is to have like the, that time in bed. So it's like, make sure that you're committing to getting up at a certain time every day. And, you know, I think do that first. Ideally, the objective with that is to go to bed at the same time, but it's easier to wake up at a certain time than it is to go to bed at a certain time, because there's more factors outside of your control when you're trying to go to bed. If you wake up early at like 8 a.m. after staying up until 3 a.m., you're going to be tired the next day. So you're going to go to bed earlier and you'll be able to wake up at that. Um, having that nighttime ritual, staying off devices, like uh, that's a, been a big one. And especially now that I'm starting to work more intimately with people on like improving their health their sleep is so out of whack and that's going to affect everything you do on a daily basis. It's going to impede your body's ability to recover from training. So people are like, I'm going to wake up at 4am. I'm going to go on a run and I'm going to do a two hour workout. I'm like, you're just burning muscle. Like this is so counterintuitive. Your stress hormones are going to be all out of whack. It's directly affecting your hormonal health. So I think that's the biggest thing. Um, another one would be not mineralizing themselves right? Like not taking any effort to reincorporate these really crucial minerals that our body has been completely devoid of because of the inefficiencies and like bastardization of our food system. And then our body's inability to absorb these nutrients because of those environmental toxins, right? Because of these things that are impeding our gut's ability to absorb nutrients. So I think mineralization is super important that people are overlooking. Like, especially if you're filtering your water, you're going to want to remineralize it because heavy metals and minerals are very similar in ionic structure, right? So your body really like they, they function a lot, oftentimes like the same, they uh, harbor on the same um, receptors, you know, they oftentimes heavy metal will replace minerals in their uh, biological functions It's called ionic mimicry. So it's like, make sure that you're mineralizing yourself so you can become more re resilient to the inevitable heavy metal exposure and like, make sure that you are prioritizing detoxification as well. Yeah. For the water stuff, it's, it's a space that I'm trying to get into, um, specifically just like, yeah, recently like looked up my zip code, saw the list. It's like, this is 186% above the legal limit. It's like, it's actually shocking and disturbing. So looking to get into like really like high quality filtration soon, a question with that is like if 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 somebody makes that investment, starts filtering their water and even buying the supplements to remineralize, is it worthwhile or necessary, do you think, to like do a proper detoxification protocol or could you just extend the period that you're now taking in good quality and your body will take care of itself? So the thing with detox in particularly with heavy metal detox is it takes so long. It's so difficult to dislodge those heavy metals that are in your tissues, right? That are, you know, essentially inhabiting the functions that your like essential minerals are supposed to. 
Um, so it's just such a long process. I think the goal should be like having periods of pretty intense detoxification, but also just having like a baseline detox protocol, right? First steps avoidance. So avoiding things that may be contaminated with heavy metals. Second step is like, are you sweating everything? Like, are you sweating a certain period of the week? Are you like making sure that you're not doing things that are going to directly impact your liver function? Are you getting like, are you reducing baseline inflammation? Are you getting proper antioxidants? Um, so like the biggest thing for me, it's like cutting out alcohol is probably the best thing that I've done for improving my detox from, and like, we have to understand that everybody has different efficiencies when it comes to their detox pathways. For me, I don't have a great, I, I don't think my baseline detox is that effective. I'm highly sensitive to like environmental exposures. And I've realized that. So I have to put in the extra effort and the effort, extra work. Some people, you know, if they have the MTHFR uh, mutation, that inheeds their body's ability to like have proper methylation, which essentially does directly impact your detox pathway. So you're going to really want to be careful with that. Look into that um, and see like maybe what kind of symptoms you may have uh, that may correlate with that. And I think also on top of that is like looking at your previous exposure. Like, have you been exposed to mold? You know, I think that's a big thing that a lot of people struggle with and don't realize it's like they grew up in a household with black mold. So their body is just absolutely ransacked with these toxins that are like really hard to detox from. You know, they're lodged in your tissues. There's biofilm in your uh, digestive, like your, your digestive system. That's really hard to break down. And then, yeah, I think digging into the rabbit hole and doing like a biannual extensive detox is really important. I'm actually doing one right now, uh, particularly for parasites. And, you know, as you can tell, my voice is a little bit raspy. I'm a little bit inflamed because that process is pretty taxing on your system and on your body. But, you know, it's important you're releasing all those toxins and you want to properly flush them out. So, man, that's a deep rabbit hole. But I think that's the one that I wish I would have found earlier. Um, but like I just got into it probably like four or five months ago and it's been my primary focus. Yeah, no, I think it's fascinating and, and a rabbit hole is a good way to describe it. I think like with so much things in the world, you can kind of like go deeper and deeper and again, eventually like black pill yourself. It's like kind of this sense of hopelessness. Like we're surrounded by toxicity. You're surrounded by inflammation. We're getting bombarded with blue light and EMFs. Like, are we just fucked? But it's about kind of like taking care of those fundamentals um, and like, you know, trying to be as vital as you can, because even people that have like what you can consider to be like health wise, a pretty bastardized lifestyle are still making it to 70, 80, 90, even if they have, are having to go on to some pretty intensive care later in life. The idea just being that you want to extend your health span deeper into your life. Um, so how do you balance like the fundamental specifically? I mean, like water is just like, it's a hard one on the move. How do you balance that? Like traveling, like, do you travel with a filter or do you just go for mineralized water? Do you bite the bullet for buying glass, like bottled water? Yeah. So, you know, once again, the reason that I do this is not to be upper level efficient, right? I'm not neurotic about it. I do it because I like putting myself in situations where I don't have access to everything, where I'm going to be, you know, affected by external toxins. You know, I, I, a lot of the places I go, it's like, it's very hard to stay healthy, but I don't really care because I've been putting all of these points and stacking all these coins in my bank. So I have more resiliency when I go and I do that. So I work really hard to be solid and perfect when I can. So then I can be sloppy when I, when I have to. Um, and for me, like at this point, it's just like second nature. Like I don't even notice it. Um, so in terms of like the water thing, 
I should, I travel with a shower filter head. I just recently started doing that because it's easy. Like it's so simple. It's like this big, right? And I just carry it with me in my suitcase. And when I go to a new place, I just unscrew the head and I put it on. Boom, that's done, right? Um, so that's super simple. It's not as hard as people think. And then in terms of water, you know, a lot of the places I go, I can't drink the tap water anyway. So I just buy, like, I try to get spring water. If I can't get spring water, I just get normal water and remineralize it. Like, it's really not that different. Like the, the friction required to drastically improve your health is so minimal. You just have to arm yourself with the information to understand how to do it in varying environments, right? Because you're not always going to have the perfect environment. I never do. But because I understand the underlying mechanisms, I know how I can alter any existing environment. And it becomes fun for me. It becomes a game, you know, like when I'm traveling and like, for example, like I'm in, I'm in a small town and I'm like, well, I'm, I'm trying to eat healthy. Um, I'm trying to avoid, you know, maybe toxins. So it's like, cool, I will get a full chicken, right? That's just rotisserieing on this grill. They literally, you know, the the chickens are just roaming around. I see them. So I'm like, cool, I'll just, I'll just eat one of those chickens. And then I'll just get like a big thing of fruit, right? I'll get a bunch of fruit. Ideally fruit that is like has to be peeled. So like oranges, peel a mango, all those things. So I'm not getting like any of that external toxins maybe that are on the outside. And like, I can assume that those are probably harvested locally uh, because they maybe don't have the infrastructure to like get in a lot of those. Cause I'm buying them from like stands on the side of the street. So I get that. And then I'll go and I'll just get like a can of sardines. Right. And like, I'll do the things that I need to do to buffer the potential damage that I get from that. So if I'm having something that I may think is contaminated with some heavy metals, I'll take some minerals that are good at binding to those heavy metals. So like if I'm having something that I think might have mercury in it, I'm going to up my selenium. I'm going to up my chromium, right? You know, I'm going to up uh, like these different minerals that are going to help my body be more resilient to these toxins. I carry activated charcoal with me. So if like I have a sus sketchy meal, I'll have some activated charcoal. So um, there's workarounds and it becomes a game um, for me. Once again, it's all a science experiment. I don't, the thing is like, I don't use willpower very often. I'm not very good with willpower. I'm just like, it's a curiosity factor. Yeah. I think that's a really um, good mental frame to avoid the neuroticism and the obsession, because that's kind of my thing when you, when you, the more, you know, the more you kind of can become concerned and like neurotic about the details, you know, even like with uh, tracking your calories, right? Like sometimes that can lead to um, eating disorders because you could become like hyper obsessed with like every food I see now has a number associated with it. Um, and likewise, it can become, okay, now I know that that apple is covered in fucking glyphosate and like all this bullshit and it has like heavy metals in it and whatever versus like the gamify, like, okay, how can I make it? How can I win as many tokens as I can by like playing in the, in the good space as opposed to the negative space. Um, and I want to do a quick kind of like rapid fire. Do you have any fitness, nutrition, wellness, hot takes? that are like maybe stuff that's getting popularized, maybe like by a Huberman and it's just like people are maybe over-focusing or whatever. Any, any people focus, Yeah, people focus too much on like testosterone boosting supplements. Tonkut, Ali, Fidoja, Grestish, uh, the ectosteroids. I don't think you should mess with those at all. It's not worth it. You know, your hormonal, your endocrine system is highly sensitive and those things are encroaching a little bit too close to being exogenous sources of those necessary hormones so i wouldn't mess with that i wouldn't mess with hormones um shilajit i do think is more effective but you know that's just a mineral based hormone booster boron again i have some boron right here as you can see on the bottom there 
you know, those are all great things that you can do that just improve your baseline function. Um, I don't think that anything that improves your function today by taking away from your functioning tomorrow is worth doing. Modafinil, Adderall, a lot of these really potent nootropics, unless it's a very specific purpose. And even then, you know, it's about is the risk worth the reward, right? And that's, you have to arm yourself with that information. I think that's a hot take. Um, let's see another one. Yeah, no. But, Anything, I don't know. Are there any that come to mind for you? Um, well, I definitely think it, like, like I said, I'm very fascinated. I love the granularity. I love to study like the mechanist, the mechanistic level, the like really detailed stuff. But I do think it like, uh, becomes a mental masturbation. And for many people, like I, I find it frustrating when I see people that are like trying arguing in comment sections about testosterone optimizing, you know, supplements and stuff. But meanwhile, they're not training hard and they're not sleeping well and they're not eating their food correctly. I think it's all about, like I kind of described it before, like these concentric, like tertiary circles, like get the fundamental, you said it yourself, like get the fundamentals, right. You have to, because that's going to get you 98 plus 99 plus percent of the results. And then this 1% really does become like, okay, like, can we do a heavy metal detox, but does it even matter? Um, yeah, it, it's more of like, yeah, like maybe it matters, but if you're training hard, sweating in a sauna, like doing the work, it's probably going to take care of itself. I agree with that one a hundred percent. And I don't even think that's, um, or maybe it's just cause I'm so habituated to it, but I don't think that should be controversial right? Humans have this natural tendency to want the easiest solution, the easiest path. A lot of times when I'm out there, like saying like, oh, it's a cool supplement. They're like, oh, I'm going to take that supplement and I'm going to do everything right. And then they're just like shitty everywhere else. The All the content that I make is for people that already have a really solid foundation of health, right? They have the basics down. They have the willpower. They have the good habits. Now they're looking for that next level. Um, yeah, dude. And I think that's why like the whole post physique movement is so important. Because having a good physique is the bare minimum. It's the bare minimum. I had a really good physique when I was eating Jimmy John's every night. I was smoking weed. I was ripping like a jewel pot a day. I was on antidepressants. Like I was the most unhealthy person in the world. I still looked really good because that's just a simple calories in, calories out, increasing your like your baseline metabolic rate and working and causing muscle stimulus. So like that's the bare minimum. I do believe that if you are a healthy person, your physiology is going to reflect that like a hundred percent across the board. I know when I'm at my unhealthiest from like an inflammation standpoint, from a like gut health standpoint, from a liver standpoint, it expresses itself in my system. Like even when I'm doing these detoxes, like I, I feel it, I notice it, I see it. And like, so like, yeah, if, if you, yeah, if you don't have the baselines down, like the rabbit holes are going to be inconsequential. Yeah, Definitely. And I know we've been going for a while and I want to be cognizant of your time. Um, but I, I've, I've, I've enjoyed this greatly. We didn't get to go into, and I kind of wanted to parlay this into more like spiritualism because I think the strength physical realm, like intertwines with the spiritual realm, mm -hmm. very interconnectedly. Like you follow it to an end point. Like it starts at some place. You, you just want to be jacked. You look up videos, like how do I get strong and fit? But it quickly spirals into this like really kind of beautiful story of like human performance. And also like you talked about psychology, there's a lot of stuff. So I think it gets potentially a part two, but, um, I want to go to like traditional kind of closure questions that I ask everybody, um, you know, a huge part of my program, it's like a men's self-mastery program. And so in your eyes, what defines being a man? 
Man, yeah, I've been really looking into that because I obviously went to a pretty liberal college and you get brainwashed against like you shouldn't be masculine. And that, that had its effect on me. Like it's strong. It is so strong um, because you're just in an environment where there's no other discourse of ideas because they're shunned and they're canceled. I think like in terms of like understanding like what masculinity is, um, a lot of it now to me has come down to responsibility, right? Responsibility, providing value, self-sustenance, right? And like the ability to care for others and care for yourself. That's been a big one for me, right? Um, and as I continue to go about, it's having more composure. It is not, it's just having more control over yourself and using that control to help others. Work, like leadership has been always a really big focus of mine. I think that's what I love the most is being able to lead others. And I think that is really core of the masculine archetype. Super important. Um, you know, I think with you, like having the idea of a Vitruvian man, I, I've only, cause you know, I'm a huge minimalist. So I only have one poster and that poster is of the Vitruvian man. And I think that's really important to me as being a Renaissance man. Um, they want you to be dependent on this, like on the system that sounds cliche, but it's like, they want you to be a specialist. They want you to be dependent and like codependent. Um, I think like true human desire is to be a generalist you know have your specialty but at least be t-shaped um so i think that's important but i think the composure is the biggest thing being able to, to maintain your composure under stress so you can be a better influence to others so you can lead others better and you know have that responsibility i think that's a really good answer and i think we're very much aligned um yeah it's, i think that emotional regulation like is is very much the uh like the masculine energy it's like this this kind of a, a good analogy and that like um aubrey marcus wrote this poem like man is a mountain woman is the ocean and it's true like the the masculine is grounded it's it's firm it's centric as opposed to fluid and changing and moving around like your job as a man embodying the masculine is just to be there like take whatever life throws at you cold wind snow whatever like you aren't moving and you're going to stay the same and then, yeah, that provision almost from an evolutionary perspective, like, yeah, you have to provide not only for yourself, but like when you're going to bring somebody else in your life, whether it's a partner or children, eventually um, be able to be provide and protect for them. It is something that is like it, it calls to us in like a deep way, you know, like it could be like it, we we even like discussing it feels like cringy because that's what we've been told. Like it's cringy. It's like toxic. It's all this shit. But like it's deep it's deep rooted more than just like me wanting to or me looking you looking up like masculinity videos online like this is who you are and when you start to move more in line with that masculine like you you live more of a vital life um in my opinion at least i couldn't agree more and i think looking at it from the context of a tribal environment right and you're right it does sound it sounds like cringy and cliche um, but that's because like, that's what kind of we're, we're habituated to. I felt the same way like three years ago, like hearing all this masculine energy stuff, I'm like that's so stupid, but like getting into it and understanding like how hardwired it is into our genealogy that, you know, digging into it really can be a solution to a lot of unrest in like the modern human and the modern man. And it definitely helps improve your quality of life. I think the biggest thing that I ever did was gaslight myself into believing that responsibility is good. Responsibility makes me feel fulfilled and stop pursuing hedonic pleasure and start pursuing fulfillment. And a lot of that came down to, you know, being a man, 
really. I think that's what it is. And, you know, there's so many man children now in this modern world, like the, the plague of man child. And I think a lot of that is this mainstream desire to, I don't even know what the right word is, but like be soft, really. And I was someone who fell into that. And I like, was like, okay, cool. I'm going to embrace that, like the softness, like I'm going to do that. And like, it just led me so astray. It didn't benefit me whatsoever. So it's just something I think we're having a little bit of a renaissance now where people are realizing that they're like this whole movement isn't working out. You know, this isn't what men need. And it's, it's very interesting to see that unfold. And I think I'm, I'm excited for it. I, uh, I have a positive outlook on how things are going to go. I think people are going to start taking back up, uh, you know, the, the masculine energy, I'd say. Yeah, I, I completely agree. Um, and I think it's an important space and, you know, I'm trying to do work in it, share a bit of my story, help as many people as I can in it. And I think the work that you're doing is, is likewise the same because it all, even like the concept of the program, the Vitruvian man, like you have to take domain and control over your body. But once you recognize the agency you have in the world, like, Oh, input output i changed my body what else can i use my mind to manipulate in the world and it, it kind of like just unfolds beautifully from there so i think that's uh i don't know you're doing good work and i commend you for it and then the second question is if you could go back to a younger version of yourself and tell him one thing what would that be don't be so stupid <laughs> um I, just, I had so many mistakes as a kid um and like a teenager and in my early 20s that I think we're important learning lessons, but spend more time alone, you know, think for yourself more looking back on what my worldview was when I was 16, 17, it was pretty right in terms of who I wanted to be and what I wanted my life to look like. I pretty much like brought it all into existence, but there was a period from when I, when I was in college where I moved away from that. And because that's what the world was telling me, um and it kind of led me astray so I would have had more faith in myself um and I still did but like from the get-go like just spend more time alone yeah that's huge I think um I don't know if you know Arlen Moore but he he has quoted and it's not unique to him but he's like a big proponent of the idea that like you can't expect to do anything if you can't do nothing like if you can just sit in a room quietly with your own thoughts, literally motionless and and doing nothing, like if you can't handle that, there's work to be done before you go out and like execute on heavy metal detox or try to build a business or whatever it is. Like there has to be that stillness to be able to go and, you know, penetrate the world and have a meaningful effect. Um, yeah. All the, all the best ideas come from like just having your brain run freely. We're constantly stimulated with devices, with food with all these things that the modern world presents us with and like really true breakthroughs happen when you're just sitting in silence, taking a walk in nature alone. Completely agree. And then as a, as a closer, what is one quote that has always stuck with you or that you try to live by? The worst I can be is the same as everybody else by Arnold Schwarzenegger. That was my senior year quote, actually. I love that. Yeah, I think it was I did a I did a podcast a while ago on it's okay to be a tryhard. And I growing up, that was something that was thrown at me in like high school, even middle school, because um, I was always like, good at school. And like, that bothered people. I took too much pride in it, like just being good at the system and getting good grades. Like I was definitely a little egotistical, but I tried hard, like I gave a damn. And I've always been that kind of person. 
and it was originally thrown for a long time as like an insult, but now it's like the biggest compliment ever, right? Like if someone were to call me anything close to average or normal, like he's a, he's a normal guy, like that would be an insult and pursuing what I like the biggest compliment I could ever want is like uncommon or strange or weird, like something non-normal because I want a life that is uncommon. So it requires me being uncommon, making uncommon decisions and uncommon choices. I think about that a lot where it's like, you know, I want to be like, there's like the, the person I want to be is probably like 1% of the population. So that means I have to do something different than what the other 99% are doing. And um, that really gets me out of bed in the morning. I think another thing that really helped propel me during like my, my times where I was like most dialed in was, um, you know, treat your life as if a documentary crew is watching you that completely changed my entire approach. I think for me too, I'm highly influenced by my external environment. And like, I work really well in coffee shops because people are watching me and I can't go on YouTube and watch like, you know, random Muay Thai videos or like supplement videos. Cause like, I want people to see me doing work. So just like treating it as if like you have a camera on your back at all times. Like what would I want to see myself doing 10 years from now in my video? Yeah, no, that is super cool. And, and it does kind of speak to embodying this like main character energy as like the meme has gone around, but like see yourself as the hero, live the hero's journey, like write your story as if you are going to be one of the greats. And like, is, is your name going to get forgotten in a generation or two? For sure. Like legacy is kind of bullshit, but like in the time that you have here, like lean into it because something deep within you is calling you to be meaningful and like a fulfilling life is, I don't know it to me, it has to be imbued with meaning. And so like, it's up to you to imbue it with that meaning and like really try to make a pretty interesting story. Yeah. Stoicism has really helped me with that. Um, doing like a really deep stoicism rabbit hole and like actually putting it into practice but like really visualizing myself at my deathbed has been a big one for me. Mm-hmm. Realizing what's important, not now, but 20 years from now, 30 years from now, 40 years from now. And that's completely changed my timeline. Um, I think I'm unique in that. Maybe I'm not unique, but like the way that I see things is like, I'm not trying to make as much money as I can this year. I'm trying to craft my life in a way where I'm still going to be excited for Mondays 20 years from now. So I think like expanding that timeline and the best way to do that is to visualize. Yeah, I agree. So super important mental frame, both the like, I mean, I have it like tattooed on my wrist, like memento mori, like remember that you will die. Like you legitimately, my thing, uh, like I, I spent the last, like I graduated back in May, spent the last like nine or 10 months building the business that I've now left my engineering job for to pursue full time. Like this is all kind of part of it. And the reason to take the leap of faith, the like the jump, the burn the boats, whatever is like, I was just sitting with myself and I was like, if I don't want to be a fraud, like if I want to believe this and know that like, if I were going to walk outside tomorrow on my way to the gym and just get struck dead by a car, like did, did that day, was that day aligned with what I wanted my life to look like? And every single day you only live it one at a time. So I want to like organize my day where I'm like chasing the something that I find meaningful and like meaning success, it's all self-defined. It's, it's, it's within the individual frame, but it's about, yeah, like I, I found so much um, solace and, and wisdom in the school of stoicism. It's changed my life. And I think it's doing a lot, you know, like the popularization of like Ryan Holiday's works to get people back to the source material, which is like meditations with Marcus Aurelius. It's just wild that we have a private journal of like the leader of the free world while he was, dealing with the same struggles that we have now like he was just a guy in like a really powerful position but 
really cool the concept of like the philosopher king and you know like in your intro i called you like the scholar athlete like i i think a strong mind begets a strong body um and so it's, it's pretty often that you see people in like really elite physical condition if you pursue down the rabbit hole they're also very interesting philosophizers or uh uh, mentalists, I guess, like even the, some of these big dudes like Arnold, like a lot of these dudes were pretty spiritual. Yeah, I love it. And like, you know, I think we all have those people in history that are kind of our, our heroes. And like, for you, it's like the author scholar or the, um, uh, the athlete scholar, or like the, um, warrior King, or I don't know, all of them, like Marcus realized all these guys. And I think for me, it was like the, uh, the warrior poet, like Miyamoto Mushashi. And like, yeah. I'm obsessed with with like the whole Bushido culture. And um, yeah, it's been a big one for me. I've noticed like really at those upper levels, there's such a correlation between like your your like mental and spiritual pursuit and your physical pursuit. I think it's really hard to have one without the other. I do see people having one without the other, but they're shallow. It's it's almost like a, it's like a block. So, I mean, that's, yeah, that's the thing for me. I, I think it really does come down to like the desire to have like that Renaissance man approach and like just pursue every avenue. And um, that just like the more avenues you pr- pursue, the more opportunity you have to experience things in life, which is super important to me. I take that any day over being in the top 0.1% of any given field. Completely agree. All right. Well, this has been really excellent. Uh, Noah, and I want to give you this like last moment for anyone listening, whatever captive audience we have uh, this deep into the hour 30 of our conversation. Um, where can people find you and what are you working on that you're excited about? Yeah. So Noah Ryan Co on uh, Twitter, it's going to be like my main thing. That's where I post. Been really focusing on the Telegram there. Uh, big focus for this year is my own podcast, short form content. I'm just really committing to uh, health education this year and just like getting more content out there in the world. Um, so yeah, doing that, you know, I'm still helping health brands grow. I think that's super important, uh, mainly because I believe that is the new medium for like this health education, because health education is expensive to produce and like, it's just not being done by the mainstream. So working with mission-based mission based health brands as well, helping them grow, particularly from a content standpoint. So find me on Twitter. Excellent. Um, I will link your shit in the description so people can find you. For those that are hearing me for the first time through Noah's audience, which is currently a lot larger than my own, I appreciate you guys for stopping in to hear more about Noah's story. I hope you found his insights valuable as well as my own. Um, if you want to follow myself, you can follow myself on Instagram at Z-D-S-C-H-E-N-K-E-N, the same thing on Twitter. And you can also follow the podcast and the program I work on specifically at Vitruvian Gentleman on Instagram. Um, and if any of this concept of becoming self self mastering yourself, becoming a Renaissance man, pursuing the most of what you're capable of, I'd love to discuss that concept with you. Um, you can go to uh, vitruvianmanprogram.com to book a call to see if you would be a good fit for the group of men I have. Um, I'd love to hear more about your story. I'm adding more people to the fold every single day, and it's I'm obsessed with it myself and helping others do the same. So I'd love to hear that from you guys. Um, but I appreciate your time. Noah, as well as those listening. Uh, Remember, your time and attention are your most valuable resources. Thank you for spending them with me, Memento Mori, and I'll catch you on the next episode of the Vitruvian Man podcast. Thanks, Zach. Appreciate it, man. And if he fails, at least fails while daring greatness.
so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who know neither victory nor defeat.